We look inside the American judicial system for stories that often go unreported from South Dakota Public Broadcasting. It's Friday, September 1st, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a new PBS Frontline partnership with the Marshall Project explores big impacts of repeat offender laws. Then inside prison walls for a look at what it's like to give birth in prison. Then we welcome author Craig Johnson for a conversation about the 19th book in the Walt Longmire series. It's a look into Walt's past and his rapidly unraveling future. SDPB's Zadia Abbott takes you to community bakeries for a look at how a small business becomes a community institution. That's coming a bit later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Labor Day was created to honor and recognize the American labor movement. It celebrates the contributions of laborers to the development and achievements of the United States. Well, last year on the show, we dove into the history of the labor movement, including the protests and riots that brought attention to the plight of the American worker. This Labor Day, the U.S. Department of Labor is calling for a recommitment to modern workplace safety and protections. Joining me now on the phone, we have Sheila Stanley. Sheila is the Sioux Falls Area Director for the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Sheila, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate being here. When we look at the history, boy, we have come a long way as a nation, but work can still have some major and even deadly hazards. What do employers need to keep in mind about worker safety? First of all, employers are required to provide a safe workplace for their employees. They must assess the work environment, eliminate hazards when possible. When not possible, they must ensure that employees are protected from those hazards through training, engineering controls, personal protective equipment, and the development of effective work rules. So uh, in my personal life, I had a friend who was killed in a workplace accident, and I remember just how difficult that was to even wrap my mind around that that could happen. Um, She was hit by a, a vehicle at work. Tell me a little bit about how common that story is. How many fatalities do we see in South Dakota, for example? First of all, I'm very sorry about your friend. Um, when somebody when somebody dies at work, it is devastating for the community, for the family. Um, so I am sorry. Unfortunately, struck by injuries, which is what that would be considered, are, are very common. In fact, over the last 12 months, we've had five fatalities, and three of them were related to struck by injuries. Yeah. Um, very common, also very preventable. Yeah. So tell me uh, some other common hazards that you find and and what sort of industries are most impacted. The the truth is all industry segments are impacted by fatalities, struck by being one of them. Another very common cause of workplace fatality and accident is falls from heights. We have a significant number of employees get seriously injured or killed um, when they fall from roofs, from trusses, um, through floor holes. Falls are very common. What are the rules for protecting from falls? What kind of precautions are, you know, really should be in place? The, the primary precaution for most employers in construction is that employees who are working at heights greater than six feet need to be protected from falls. Often that's with conventional fall protection, which looks like a, a harness with a rope and a good anchor point. Um, 
It can also be rails around an area so an employee can't accidentally back off or um, walk off an edge. So guardrails and conventional fall protection are, are two of the things we like to see. We live in South Dakota, so one of our biggest concerns is always people who work in the ag industry, whether that's the family farmer or an ag worker who's been hired to do some kind of work. What is important to know about ag safety this season? First, first of all, agriculture is South Dakota's number one industry. It's an extremely important industry and also a very dangerous industry. When I think about agriculture, I think about struck by hazards, as we talked about, but also, I talk about, or I think about entry into grain storage bins. Um, engulfment and suffocation hazards exist when employees enter grain storage bins without appropriate personal protective measures. Um, OSHA takes grain bin entry very, very seriously, and it is unfortunately an issue that we deal with every year. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up with uh, who, who workers can contact if they have safety concerns. What do you want to close with this Labor Rights Week? Workers can definitely, workers should bring safety and health concerns to the attention of their supervisor without fear of retaliation. If that does not resolve the issue, workers should call OSHA at 1-800-321-OSHA. Um, in South Dakota, they can call me at 605-361-9566. If a worker does not want to make a call or cannot, you can always make a complaint online at www.osha.gov. We have an electronic complaint form there. Um, I would encourage, encourage workers to let OSHA know if there are hazards or if there is any type of retaliation related to hazards and to do that promptly after, after those occurrences. Yeah, work hard, but go home safely. 1-800-321-OSHA. Sheila Stanley is Sioux Falls Area Director for the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Sheila, you've been great. Thank you so much. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to you as well. Take care. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A two-part documentary special from PBS Frontline and The Marshall Project shines a light on parts of the U.S. criminal justice system that usually stay in the shadows. The first part of the hour is called Two Strikes, and it explores the big impacts of the little-known Two Strikes law. The second part, Tutwiler, offers an intimate look at what's, what it is like to be pregnant and to deliver a child while you're incarcerated in prison. Ursula Liang is the director of Two Strikes, and Alicia Santo is producer of Tutwiler and staff writer for The Marshall Project. They're both with me here on the phone. Ursula, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Alicia, thank you as well. Thank you. Um, both of you are inside the prison walls and dealing with some really deeply human stories. And I want to start this out by answering one of the questions that a lot of listeners will want to know, and I found striking. As you talk to the people who are serving time, they all had an awareness of who they had hurt, of what they were trying to do to be better people, of the difficulty of their situation and how it might be hard to transition back to the outside, the consequences of, of the people they left behind. And Ursula, I want to start with you because you met uh, this man, Mark Jones, who was living in prison and just 
understanding what was happening to his family on the outside of that. So let's just start, Ursula, with the, the human aspect of this. You really got to know these people, this family. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it's very difficult to go into a subject and um, and really even imagine that somebody is in prison for life without parole. That is the situation that Mark Jones is in right now. His crime was um, carjacking, um, and this this law that he's um, that's put him in in jail in prison uh, for life is uh, a two strikes law. So he had previously committed um, a felony, and his felony was stealing a four hundred dollar drill from Home Depot. And then he spent a year in jail, and then he reoffended within three years. And this this uh, law they had in place in Florida meant that he um, was then being put up to the maximum sentence. Um, so in the crime that he actually committed, he um, he's, he's uh, convicted of having tried to steal a car from an old woman in a parking lot of a grocery store, but he actually didn't steal the car. He wasn't armed and the woman wasn't hurt. And so he's now been in jail for about 12 years. And um, in a lot of places, uh, if you get life, um, in prison, that means that you're eligible for parole in 15 years. But in Florida, there is no parole anymore for lifers. And so um, he is now in prison for, for a very long time. And so, you know, you meet with somebody and I met with him for an hour. That was the limit we had for our interview and you get to know them. Um, and, and he's been in, in for 12 years really thinking about what he's done. But it's um, it's really even hard for me as a person um, meeting him to understand what it's like to be in prison for that long and to know that you're never getting out. He stole a drill and then he was intoxicated and scared this woman because he said he was going to take her car. and She screamed at him and he, he left. She said the victim of this crime said, no, this is too much of a punishment. He is a young man. Does The victim doesn't have any. I mean, this is the, the way the law is written. There's no discretion from the judge or from, you know, victim impact statements or anything. Do I understand that correctly? That's correct. There's no uh, there's no discretion from the judge, which is a big deal. Um, and the victim, you know, when this actually he was actually convicted by a six person jury and the jury is also uh, not aware of what he you know, they're, they're aware that he, they're convicting of being guilty or not guilty, but they're not aware of exactly what the punishment will be. Um, so, you know, this was. Um, the victim, um, Eunice Hopkins, she actually spoke with the reporter from the Marshall Project, Carrie Aspinwall, who I worked in partnership to make this film with. And, and um, this was many years after the crime had been, had been committed. And she, um, you know, she told her very, you know, very directly that that's not what she expected him, how he, she expected him to be punished. And so, no, her, her statement at that point um, did not make it a difference. But she also, um, I think there is potentially like a very, very, very slim chance of him having um, some sort of um, forgiveness. Uh, if, if, you know, I think if the victim, you know, I think there's, there's a very, very slim chance. He's already sort of gone through all his appeals, but, uh, but there's possibility that if, you know, if she really spoke up and everybody spoke up and, and he got like a very, very rare connotation that he could still get out. But that's, He's pretty much spent all of his appeals. His, he's got long shot appeals right now to the Supreme Court, which is likely not to go through. Um, so, but yeah, it, 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 uh, there's no discretion in it with this with this law. Very, you know, for the folks that want to speak up. And Mark tried to get help. So this is not the first, uh, you know, crime he committed. We've talked about the two uh, main incidents that brought him to his current sentence. But he went to the VA. He has PTSD. Um, he was a West Point candidate as a younger man. Um, married, his parents love him and care about him, and he 
he tried to get help through the VA and to say, I'm having these nightmares, I'm having this alcohol use disorder, I'm, you know, having issues. Why wasn't there any help for him? And is that's not part of the equation either, is getting him. Like, well, you know what I'm trying to ask here? Yeah. yeah. Yes, he actually was a cadet at West Point, and yeah. I think a key point to know is that he actually suffered uh, a violent hazing incident at West Point, at which point um, he triggered uh, PTSD and um, a lot of problems and a lot of trauma for him. And so he did try to find support through the VA system. I think oftentimes, you know, when people are within a system and they're really struggling um, with addiction, with trauma, all these things are harder for them to access. So, you know, he describes being sort of bounced around, feeling like he was his problem, you know, by their accounts was too big for one one clinic and then too small for another clinic. And someone wanted him to be sober for a period of time before he could be brought into this inpatient um, place. So for him, the rules and the regulations, he's struggling on a day to day to just get through every day. Um, We say within the film, you mentioned within the film that he actually was sleeping in the woods at some point. You know, he had a, a partner who loved him and a place that he could have stayed, but he was in so much um, pain that he was doing things that were very abnormal. And so I think when you're in a a position where you're um, struggling, it's very hard to access the systems that are in place, especially when there are rigid rules in place for accessing them. I want to bring Alicia Santo into the program because the second half of this uh, Frontline and Marshall Project uh, documentary deals with uh, Tutwiler in Alabama, which is a prison, and we look at women who are pregnant and going to deliver their children while incarcerated. And uh, Alicia, I was primed (laughs) by Ursula's tender work, and then I was undone by the second half of this. It's one of the most... um, heartbreaking front lines that I have watched and I don't know how long partially because there's so much love in it of of these women for each other uh, for their children uh, for the people that they once were or maybe could be again tell me a little bit about um, Tutwiler and why you wanted to look at this program in Atlanta they was trying to figure out what do we do when somebody is going to give birth in prison yeah, so um, women are the fastest growing population of prisoners in the United States. And along with that means there's a lot of children who don't have their mothers with them. And uh, when I was thinking about this issue of women in prison, which I've written extensively about, um, I started being very interested in how prisons dealt with uh, women who were pregnant in their custody. And I, um, during my research, was in contact with a doula program in Alabama called the Alabama uh, Prison Doula Project, or Prison Birth Project. Um, And they had just started a program to come into the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women, which is an infamous prison in Alabama, and um, provide programming, provide nutritious meals, and most importantly, provide someone to sit next to them as they give birth. Uh, these women were before the doula project came into the Alabama prison. Uh, these women were like most incarcerated women in the United States. They went, if they were pregnant, they gave birth at a hospital, had a, a loan with only security staff present, and then were sent back to the prison without their baby and had to deal with that situation um, without a support system like a doula. So these doulas do what they can. They're still extremely limited. Um, but they provide a, a softer landing and would otherwise be available. And they are there to just support them. And these women 
by having the doulas there form a group, as all of them are new mothers or pregnant at the time of their incarceration, then they can all really lean on each other. And so we were there to document that experience um, over the course of about a year, going back and forth, back and forth to film, and just watch as um, people went through this unimaginable experience, completely unimaginable experience of having your baby and then having to separate from your baby within 24 hours. 24 hours is like zero time. I mean, there's a woman who gives birth during this film and as she's coming back to the facility, you know, she's walking in, obviously she's physically, she looks like she's in pain. Uh, She's moving very slowly, bracing herself. um, And they say, welcome back. Um, Yep. I'm just not sure I'm ever going to get over that, um, ever going to get over that moment, having had a child myself and knowing how you feel just 24 hours. And she didn't, you know, she, she doesn't know where her baby is at that point. I mean, she has an idea that he's gone to this home, but she doesn't know, you know, is he crying? Is he fed? Is he, you know, what is his experience like? God, that's hard stuff. It's really hard. And one of the points one of the moms makes in the film that always uh, has stayed with me is, you know, prison is an experience extremely lonely experience and for these women there was somebody with them the whole time there was their baby inside of them that was there and they could feel that baby and um, then when they give birth and that baby's finally in this world they return more alone than ever um, because now their baby is apart from them and in some instances they don't even know where their baby is if the state takes custody of that child so it's a, I had a baby after making the film. It was really, really emotionally um, difficult just to see it then. And now I'm even more in a place where I, I couldn't imagine it then. And now I'm just like, I truly, it's unfathomable um, to not have your child with you. And, and Lisa, to get back to the point that I was kind of making earlier in the hour, there's one scene in your film where people are really talking about, and I think Ursula does a, an excellent job in her film as well, just the struggling with self-forgiveness for, but a lot of these women are in prison for some very low-level drug offenses. Um, <clears throat> they yeah. want to be good mothers, and they're really, really hard on themselves uh, for the mistakes that they have made. But it's also this prison has had a terrible history of sexual assault. Um, uh, They've been investigated for the prison guards having sex with the inmates. There's been reports of, of drug use within the facility. So someone who's addicted thinks, well, staying clean in prison is easy. You have no access. Well, that's not necessarily true either. Talk about just having a well-run facility and how the age of this facility and, and some of the problems that they've had in the past and the staffing issues that they have are, are contributing to a really difficult environment for these women. So, yeah, there's so many things to say about that. Um, this prison is quite old. It does not have air conditioning. This is Alabama, so that's a big deal. Um, the women who are pregnant were held in a medical dorm, which was the only dorm that did have air conditioning. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's parts of it are falling apart. Um, it has a sort of people are trying to make more programming, but there was a lot of just idle time where people just have nothing to do. Um, you know, there were um, when you're in prison, it doesn't mean that there aren't drugs available. And a lot of times there are. 
and it's it, these addiction programs while they are offered it, it can be a long wait to get in one um it, they can be potentially not as sort of um they aren't to the level maybe that people really need this type of, of um, therapy and this type of recovery that they're seeking. It's not necessarily available to them in a prison. And um, prison's also just like really not the greatest place to heal um, from all the trauma that led some of these women to using drugs in the first place. Right. Um, a lot of women and even and men too in prison have suffered um, serious traumas in their life that, of course, influenced um, some of the choices they made that led them there. Yeah. And so it's it's um it, it was shocking I think to a lot of people to learn that this group of women we followed almost every single one of them was there on a drug charge. So they were sent to prison pregnant. They didn't get pregnant there. Mm -hmm. So they were sent to prison pregnant, knowingly pregnant. The justice system knew they were pregnant for a, uh, for a drug related crime and to, to serve out a sentence with a a small human inside of them. I want to go back to Ursula for a minute, because there's one more point that I want to bring up before we run up against time. And that's that Mark Jones, the person you talked to is serving as a law clerk at the prison library, and he talks about, you know, I'm trying to make a difference. There are a lot of uh, mm-hmm. people here who are barely literate. They can't write a, a brief uh, to try to help their case out, but it is hard on a daily basis to survive. So he's dealing with the trauma of the hazing incident. He's dealing with life behind bars and everything that entails. He's trying to make a difference for other people who are worse off than he is intellectually, and that's just a lot that he's up against. Um, what do you want to r- close with? You know, um, this isn't this isn't a story where we end on some kind of hope. Like, what what do you hope by bringing to light some of these stories, Ursula? And then we'll ask Alicia the same thing. Like, what do you hope is the impact of of this this documentary, this project? I mean, we really wanted people to feel the experience of what's happening to Mark um, and to have their own journey in in coming to the decision about what they think is um, justice in this kind of case. Um, You know, no one needs to think that Mark is a good guy. We we were really clear and journalistic about the way we put the film together. He's not a perfect guy. He's pretty much a model prisoner now, and he is doing all these things um, to help other folks. He's got an education. He's smart. He's well-spoken, and he's willing to tell us a story, even though he has very little hope for his own case. But this, um, this law, this two strikes law, the Prison Releasee Reoffender um, Act is, is still affecting lots of people. And, and a lot of them are people who are, um, again, dealing with addiction and, and other trauma and, and committing crimes um, due to those reasons, you know, just like in the other film. And you know, I think that people, I just want people to experience the film, um, decide whether they think a law like this, which was meant to really, um, you know, I think people really thought this was putting murderers away. And um, putting them away quicker and faster and for longer um, in a time when law and order was a real priority. Um, but it's also catching up people like it's catching people on the dragnet like Mark. And it's catching a lot of people on the dragnet like Mark. I think some 44 percent of the people serving life without parole in Florida are um, are not there for murder. Um, and so, you know, just someone who tries to steal a car from somebody, um, no matter how bad a person they are, no matter how um you know, not the situation is, do they deserve to serve life in prison without the possibility of parole, or is there a better option? Um, what is justice in this country? I just want people to sit with that. Yeah. Alicia Santo, one of the things I, I'm hoping you might close with is something else that stuck out to me, and a woman who was in the lactation room, 
and that, which was her only quiet moment in the day is if she got to go pump breast milk to have it sent to her infant, said, you know, we're all victims of domestic assault and you want us to break the cycle of trauma and abuse will help us help us figure out how to do that. What do you want to leave listeners with, Alicia? Well, I hope people watch the film and similar to Ursula uh, from a journalistic perspective. The goal of the film is to have people think about whether this is how we want our society to run, whether we think that this is the best option or, you know, as in 2023 to send people uh, especially people charged with low-level crimes to serve out sentences in prisons that are unequipped to take care of them while they have small babies growing inside of their body, and even people who don't. Um, the conditions in so many prisons in the United States are just um, absolutely abysmal. And um, we focus on one small segment of the population because um, I think for one, I think people will feel feelings about that where maybe they wouldn't feel feelings about other people who are incarcerated. And it just it just reminds people like this is this is happening in every single state. This is happening all around our country where we we have a justice system that sends uh, pregnant women into facilities to serve out time on things when, and there aren't really other options for them. And then you have to think about the children who are in the outside world without a mother at a week old, two weeks old, which again, very hard to imagine and just completely unnatural. So I hope, you know, people just are aware that the main thing is to make people aware that this is a reality in, in the United States. And from there, how people deal with it is really up to them. But I hope to just bring awareness to the fact that, and to bring feelings to people of like, this is what it is and this is what it feels like. And I think most people have a lot of feelings when they watch the film. Well, you can watch Two Strikes and Tutwiler airing on PBS's Frontline's website and the PBS app at 6 Central, 5 Mountain on Tuesday, September 5th. It'll be on SDPB TV at 9 Central, 8 Mountain Time. On that Tuesday, Ursula Liang and Alicia Santo, thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, for 18 books and a wildly popular television series, Walt Longmire has led a storied career as sheriff in a desolate but beautiful stretch of Wyoming. Now it is 19 books. The Longmire Defense comes out next week on September 5th, and this book deals with a murder that comes a bit closer than usual to Walt. You see, one of his family members is implicated in the cold case. Craig Johnson is the mind behind Walt, Walt Longmire, and uh, Craig is with me on the phone. Craig Johnson, welcome back to In the Moment. Hey, good to be here. Last time you and I were sitting face to face in the studio talking about Helen Back, that book. So it's so nice to to get this book in the mail and know that I got to talk to you again. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I was a little upset with you and said some bad words though because I stayed up all night and um, I did not get any sleep. <laughs> Because I was well, that's my job. That's my job. I'm not supposed to <laughs> soothe you into sleep, you know, in mid sentence. There, I'm supposed to keep you up late. Like You're not a sleep <laughs> therapist. You're the opposite of good sleep hygiene, and uh, that felt it felt fantastic. So, first of all, thank you and congratulations on another great book. Um, I come back to Walt Long Longmire again and again, um, just because I love these characters and I love the world that you've created. What keeps bringing you back? to tell the next story? 
Oh, I think it is, it's probably very, very similar. Like that, I mean, I enjoy the company. Like that, I enjoy the environs. Like that, um, you know, I, I laugh like that because every once in a while I'll get you know emails from people that say I always slow down when I get towards the end of one of your books because mm-hmm. I don't want it to end. And I'm like, me too. I do yeah. that too when I'm writing them. <laughs> it's not like they're not. I, I'm not aware that there's going to be other episodes with them and other novels. But it's just you know at that moment you're you're losing them you know for that one moment you know in their lives like. And it's always um, a little bit sad, like that. But uh, but yeah, I mean that. Hopefully, the enjoyment of like still writing a, a pertinent you know series, you know, after 19 years. Like, and I mean, I'm still having a good time writing the books, like that. And this one's no different. I mean, it's one of my favorites in the sense that one of the things I really love to do is circle back around and discover more, um, not only about Walt but about a lot of the characters, you know. Um, and that kind of grows, I think, you know, with the, the mythos and, and the universe of, of books. I mean, the statement I always make is, is like when you start out, you've only got one book turned sideways. So you're taking up approximately one and a half inches of real estate in all the bookstores in America. But uh, <laughs> once you get to about 20 or so books, you're, you're taking up a little bit more shelf space. And so uh, yeah. it gives you the opportunity to circle back around and maybe find some interesting points. And I, I've always thought that that relationship between Walt and his grandfather was one that I wanted to explore at some point in time. Yeah, we're going to get there. But first, <laughs> <laughs> first, I have to talk to you about Vic, because the last time uh-huh. you, the last time you were here, um, you said that you get letters when a character is not featured as much as, you know, like people write you and say, like, this is my favorite character. And they just weren't in this book enough. And it is I'm not going to give away anything about the plot, but, you know. <laughs> It is a plot point that we don't get a ton of Vic in this book, and we are deeply worried about that. How dare you? Are the letter? Are you ready? Uh, are no, you ready for I the letters that, <laughs> that say? But boy, when we do get her, we get her in spades. Look at and boy, it's pretty epic. Like that, what happens? You know. Uh, yeah. I mean, that that's actually kind of. I think you and I discussed that earlier. Like that, but the, the fact that, like, you yeah. know, whenever I first started out writing the books, you know, when, uh, all other authors always have a lot of advice for beginning authors. Like one of the pieces of advice I got was, is well, you can have, you know, sexual tension, you know, between your characters, but you can't have anything happen for seventeen or eighteen books. And my immediate response to that was, what kind of women are you dating? Like, I would wait 17 or 18 years for something to happen like that. And so, you know, this this has been kind of an on-again, off-again, on-the-burner, off-the-burner kind of relationship, you know, here for the last, uh, you know, five years of the characters' lives, since it takes me about four books to get through, like, one year of their literary lives. Right. And, uh, you know, it was it was heading in a certain direction like that. And so, you know, we kind of kind of had to come to some conclusions here like that or draw some conclusions by the time we got to the end and I didn't want to shortchange that like that but I knew it wasn't going to be a, a major part of the investigation process like it in this particular book and so it uh, it kind of had to take a, a little bit of a back burner at that point in time but boy like I said when it when it comes forward it comes forward <laughs> with a vengeance <laughs> so let's talk about the the main story here and that is this cold case in the beginning of the book Walt finds a rifle that's been hidden away and immediately Immediately, it sort of points back to someone very close to him. Tell me about his relationship with his grandfather well, and wh- why this like is that, so complicated know. for him and so conflicting. Oh, well, yeah. you know, I mean, this, this is a long-running, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, intricacy like that, you know, with Walt's character, like that, this relationship with his grandfather. And uh, and the case itself, like that, what happens is, is that, of course, you know, this this rifle is discovered up in the Bighorn Mountains, and uh, it kind of has ties, you know, going back to 1948 when the uh, the state accountant, uh, a fellow by the name of Bill Sutherland, was uh, 
possibly killed. And, uh, of course, the quandary in the investigation was that they couldn't find the weapon that did it. It was something of a an experimental weapon at that period in time, a 300 H&H Magnum. And so when Walt, or more importantly, Walt's dog stumbles upon that rifle and they find it, um, it kind of complicates the issue a great deal when they discover that, you know, the you know, the weapon actually belonged to his grandfather, Lloyd Longmire. And uh, I don't know, I like to think of Walt as being a, a very ecumenical, you know, fair-minded investigator. But uh, I don't know, in, in this one, you know, he, he seems to want to go after his grandfather for this. And uh, that kind of intimates, you know, just how complicated their relationship was. Um, I think the only even ground that they had, the only playing field that they both felt comfortable in was on that chessboard, you know, where his grandfather was trying to teach Walt how to use his mind and how to think, you know, a couple of moves ahead and not only always be reacting like that, but acting like that in life. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a unique situation for Walt to find himself in, you know, to kind of be rooting um, for somebody to be guilty of a very heinous crime. Yeah. I want to read a little bit from a page where the doctor is talking, um, and he's elderly, and he's thinking about his retirement, and he says, I've come to the conclusion, as a lot of elderly people do, that the times are growing worse in this godless, indifferent, chaotic universe where social structures that disguise the true horrors of existence are rapidly falling away and that things are indeed getting worse. The themes of, of people getting older, um, crimes being committed that are, that are new, crimes that were committed you know, years, decades ago that are being investigated is an ongoing theme of this, this book, at least. Tell me a little bit about how you're approaching the aging of certain characters and how they might intersect with their thoughts about modernity. <laughs> wow, that's a loaded question. How much time do we have here? Like, I'm going to have to take a thought onto that one. Like that. I, th- I think the, one of the biggest mistakes that you can make when you're writing a series is to not allow the characters um, to age, to develop, like that, mm-hmm. to change. Um, for me, that's one of the, the, the joys of writing uh, the books. Like, I mean, the, the, the sequences in the book where we see Walt as a child, um, it's mm-hmm. very revealing, like, to see, you know, the development that he had, like that, and uh, who is the man that he's become now, and how are those two connected? Um, for me, that's, that's always going to be, you know, essential, um, because if you don't have that, I don't think that, that, that the books are particularly worth reading, to be honest with you. You're just reading about characters in a stasis like that that's almost, you know, cartoonish. And so it's very essential for, you know, for me to see that, that change in who they are and their views on things like that and uh, how exactly it is that they face those challenges and how they come to terms with them. I believe that, you know, whenever Isaac Bloomfield is making those statements, Walt's response is, is he's holding his clipboard, all that written on that clipboard there, Doc, you yeah. know, he's, <laughs> he's trying to keep his sense of humor like yeah. that, you know, even in the face of, you know, that kind of a nihilist uh, kind of you know, response, you know, but uh, I don't know. For me, you know, you can't deal with the issues that these books deal with and not take them very seriously and understand, you know, what kind of uh, de- degree, you know, that you're, you're dealing with, you know, as far as the life and death of these characters. But then again, you know, the other joy is is trying to, to give them a light at the end of the tunnel and let them see that, you know, that there is hope mm-hmm. and uh, there is a purpose, you know, for all the things that they're doing. I mean, you know, Walt talks about all the good that, you know, that Lucian, I mean, not Lucian, but Isaac has done, yeah. you know, over the years. Like that, and Isaac, you know, turns the tables on him and says, you know, look at all the good that you've done, Walt. 
And so it's very easy, you know, to become you know, nihilistic and to, to to see nothing but the darkness, you know, especially when you're dealing, you know, with crime fiction. But, you know, in the in the reality of the business, it's also a question of trying to to understand the good and understand that the, the good fight is worth fighting. Mm, I love that. All right, we have like 30 seconds left. The television show, which I still refuse to watch because I am the reader in the room. Um, no offense to people who have only watched the well, television. the books are better. Uh, the books are better. I'm not going to say that because somebody's going to be mad at me because I haven't watched the TV show, so I can't say that. Uh, well, that's just a question of books. You know, yeah. It's 400 pages of material versus 42 pages of material for the average teleplay. Like that. So, and I've always got this one incredible advantage. It's called the reader's imagination. Yeah. I can always just you know use those words like dominoes and tip them over and you do all my heavy lifting for me. So for that, I thank you. What's next? You're working on the next uh, one already. Actually, the next book is called uh, First Frost, yeah, yeah. is what it's called. And I know it's been a dying you know, curiosity for you. When is it that cowboys switch over from their straw hats to their wool hats? And that yes. is the first frost. <laughs> That's when you make that change. Like, and I know, you, I know you've been wanting to know about that. We talked about it last time you were here. We talked yes, about it. Yes. Okay. And, uh, and and it's uh, what what it, what it is is it's actually a road trip book. Mm. Uh, it's a little bit different. Like it takes place back in 1963 when uh, Walt and Henry graduate from uh, college <laughs> and lose their deferments, and are uh, you know mm-hmm. are going to have to you know check in with the federal government about a all expense paid trip to Vietnam. Like that, and so it sends them on this whirlwind cross-country trip on Route 66 back in 1963, and uh, it's interesting to see how far they make it before they get into trouble, which is not very far (laughs) at all. A couple blocks, probably, with these two. All right, Craig Johnson, (laughs) The Longmire Defense, comes out next Tuesday. Uh, Delighted that you showed up for South Dakota listeners again, and and thank you so much for your time. Always a joy. Always a joy. Anything to do with South Dakota is always a joy. (laughs) All right. Thank you. See you next time. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Small town institutions are important. They can help build a place's identity and can serve as landmarks like a school, bank, or city hall. But for some communities, that essential institution is a bakery. In addition to tasty treats, townspeople find a sweet place to meet within its walls. SDPB's Zadia Abbott checks in on locally owned bakeries and the communities that treasure them. Carol and Ed Raddick own the Tyndall Bakery. The business west of Yankton is named after the town and its doors first opened in 1905. Carol says a number of owners have kept the bakery in business for over 100 years. We're probably the, I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh owner. The last owner had it for 37 years and the owner previous to that had it for 40. It was in the Cluda family for 40 years. The Raddicks have owned the bakery and its recipes for more than 16 years. Before that, Carol spent two decades doing factory work, then realized she wanted something new. As she put it, the little bakery was for sale for some time, and so they bought it. Now they are known for their homemade kolaches. It's a sweet pastry with fruit in the center. Carol emphasizes the difference in the goods and the preparation at Tyndall Bakery versus a large commercial operation. She says there's a level of commitment in owning a bakery that requires devotion. Well, it's homemade. You know, um, it's scratch bakeries. And uh, it's a lot of hours, it's a lot of hard work, and you just don't find people that are going to be dedicated to that. The bakery business doesn't rely heavily on modern technology. 
One of the biggest breakthroughs, the bread slicer, is 95 years old. Along the way, some bakers and communities have stayed dedicated to small retail institutions. About an hour east of Tyndall is Centerville, a town with a population of less than 1,000. The bakery here first opened in 1946. It's where cars start pulling up at 5.45 in the morning. Lots of the customers are here for one thing, the zebra donut. It's the specialty of the Zebra King Donuts shop. Keith and Janine Ellis owned the Royal Bake Shop in Centerville for more than three decades. Earlier this year, they sold the business and recipes to Brian and Brooke Hilly. Then the Hillies renamed the business after the big seller. Keeping with the royal theme, the official new name of this Centerville business is Zebra King Donuts. Brooke Hilly says they have customers who drive more than 20 minutes for one of their zebra donuts. She explains how they make the famous pastries. You know, we got two of the two doughs, you get your, your white raised yeast, and then there's a chocolate in there in between. And they're actually sandwiched together. And then, you know, they press, roll them out and do the pressing and all that fun stuff. And then one by one, they're punched out. And then they go to the proof burns, proof for a while. And then we go in the fryer. And then they get glazed with the, with the regular, you know, white, you know, icing glaze. And then we use uh, Keith Ellis's signature chocolate glaze is what makes them just amazing. So The Hillies have been operating the bakery for almost three months on their own. They're still getting used to the early morning hours. They left a life in Iowa where Brian spent 30 years working a corporate job. They say this career change was not an easy or quick decision. Brian Hilly and Keith Ellis knew each other for years before the sale. Brooke Hilly says keeping small town businesses going is a challenge. Well, they're disappearing at alarming rate and it's, it's not an easy thing to maintain. I mean, bakeries, you know, 30 years ago, they made everything. They had breads, cakes, you know, rolls. I mean, they, they had everything, you know. But, you know, things have been cut down. It's hard to compete with, you know, with corporations. While competition in a world defined by dough may be a tough reality, the Centerville community clearly supports its bakery, if the early morning lines for zebra donuts are any indication. In northwestern South Dakota, there's another small town bakery with new owners. Artie's Bakery has been in Clear Lake for over four decades. Nicole Roof and her family renovated and reopened the business as Artie's Bakery Soup and Sandwich Shop last July. She says it's been a big change for her family. So the bakery was here, it's been here for a while. Um, we moved from New York about two years ago, um, and the bakery was sitting closed. Someone mentioned it to us, and we bought it and decided to reopen it for the community. The roofs are working with the previous owner to keep the recipes alive for the community. And Nicole says community members are excited to see the bakery reopen. However, moving from New York to the Midwest means they are learning about some new sweet treats. Um, people like the caramel rolls around here. It's something I didn't even know existed. Being in New York, I've never heard of them. Um, but here it's a staple, at least in this community. And so we do our best to make sure there's caramel rolls readily available every morning. Many local bakery operators say they're in business to provide what their customers ask for. These businesses can become a big part of a community. For some bakers, having a business that helps to find a place is more than they expected. But lots of hard work and decades of flour and sugar-coated effort can put a town and its baked goods on the map. I'm SDPB's Zadia Abbott in Vermilion. You can find and share this story on our website, sdpb.org news. Now, the South Dakota Young Readers Festival of Books kicks off later this month in Rapid City and Deadwood, 
Julia Lyon is returning to the festival. She's the author of a debut picture book called A Dinosaur Named Ruth, and it's the true story of a girl who found dinosaur bones in the South Dakota prairie. Julia is a graduate of the Columbia University School of Journalism and the recipient of a United Nations Correspondents Association gold medal. She joined me last year for a conversation about telling real stories, reapproaching the ordinary, and of course, dinosaurs. Ahead of Julia's return to South Dakota, we thought we'd bring you our September 2022 conversation. Take a listen. Uh, Julia, you have this uh, sort of high-powered journalism education training, uh, refugee camp background, and then you also step into this world to say kids need that rigorous journalism research in their literature as well. Tell me about how you transferred some of that energy into a dinosaur named Ruth. I just think kids deserve fiction and they deserve true stories and they want both of them and we should try to make them as accurate as they can. I love researching. If anything, sometimes I go too deep on the researching and I'm learning that as I'm going through my journey as a, as a new children's book author. Um, I just try to use those skills of on the ground interviewing. I came out to South Dakota. I met the descendants of Ruth's descendants. Um, I tapped into the South Dakota State Archives. Um, I was able to access the information that was out there to try to bring this story back to life because no one had ever written it before. And this is a story of paying attention and learning something monumental that mm -hmm. changes the way we see the world. Tell us about the story behind this book. I love that Ruth found what she knew was different on the ground. It wasn't a rock, it wasn't a buffalo bone, and maybe she didn't have that kind of expertise, but because she paid attention to her land and knew it so well, um, she was able to just keep asking questions. And, and maybe she got ignored, but she kept going for decades. And that's one of the messages I really try to share with kids, to remain curious. And if you have a, an instinct about something, you're probably right. Mm -hmm. and, and continue on with the, that asking of questions, and you'll eventually get your answer. Yeah, and for listeners who can't see, Julia's wearing a dinosaur dress right here in <laughs> this big, beautiful, vibrant dinosaur print. Yeah. Julia, we get into the space and we say dinosaurs and kids' books and bugs and poetry, and we've invited anybody to, everybody to have this fun, and then, then we get to the real serious business of children's literature, which is helping kids understand mm -hmm. a very difficult world. And your experience as a journalist has brought to you to some stories that are incredibly difficult to process. How do you, then as a children's author, for perhaps books you'll do in the future, think about what kids need in really, really tough times? I think kids need stories that matter, whether it's a story about a woman who was ignored and probably shouldn't have been for too long mm -hmm. um, and finally overcame that you know, potential prejudice against her, whether it's a story about how kids change the world. I just think kids can get empowered through reading children's books, even in little nonfiction picture books. I, I think those can have a huge impact on kids. I watch it with my own kids. We read tons of nonfiction in my house, and I frankly learn from my fellow authors. I read you know many, many of them, and I'll walk away and say I had no idea whether it's about Native American history or African American history, there's so many things I didn't know about, and I'm grateful that these books are out there for kids and for grown-ups to be reading. Yeah. Um, 
South Dakota is in this really interesting time with education and what should be on shelves in libraries as, as much of the world is. I'm not asking you to get political because you're not from here and you don't know all the nuances of it. But on the other hand, it's really important to get books in the hands of children and to give them choices and the, the rights of a reader to reach out and grab a book that they see themselves reflected in has to be something that you've thought about. I think about it as a parent. I yeah. do not restrict what my kids read. Um, you know, if they bring home something that I know people have raised questions about, I do try to talk to them about it. Um, but I really believe that um, we should let our kids read what they want to read. And it might, you know, lead to some amazing discussions that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and the books they're reading just reflect the world. So don't we want our kids to be reading about the world? We will be uh, taking, in the moment, West River to the South Dakota Young Readers Festival of Books and to the Festival of Books later on this month. Meet us out there. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you on Labor Day. SDPB brings you I Hear America Singing, featuring the group Contus. It promises to be a joyful examination of the role work has played in our lives in years past and how work might evolve into the future. In the Moment is produced by Ellen Kester and Ari Youngman. I'm your host, Lori Walsh, from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. We thank you for listening.